Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to 3, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. It is time to reflect on what was an incredibly eventful, wacky, and interesting 2022 season. And um, by the end of this, we hope to have an answer on on what's been a, a fun debate at the end of the year, which is who is player of the year. Uh, we have, you know, two of two of the three uh, involved in the conversation, certainly Nadal and Djokovic. You also have Alcaraz, who very much also belongs in that conversation. So uh, we will get into that. But uh, I do want to kind of go chronologically. The start of the year, it's crazy to think about, guys, because it's it's such a whiplash. Amy, we, we're going into the Australian Open. We're preparing and we think Novak's going to play. That's the news cycle, that he's going to play. And Rafa, well, we're very unsure about his prospects. He hadn't played the last six months of 2021. Uh, he had COVID. Uh, then he played this Melbourne 250. He won it. He didn't look great, though. He didn't really play anyone great. And we go into this Australian Open. Uh, and now, suddenly, Djokovic, with the whole debacle, uh, he is in the draw, but last minute, he doesn't get to play. And two weeks later, Nadal won the Australian Open. It's so unexpected. It was such a turnaround. It was such a crazy turnaround and an unexpected turn of events because the expectations going into Australia, you might have been optimistic. I don't remember. They were quite low for Rafa. Oh, I'll tell you what happened. I'm going to take you guys in the Wayback Machine all the way to October of 2021. I specifically remember being out at Indian Wells and because they were having it in the fall that year. And I said to you guys, I don't know if I said it on the show or right before, that this Novak thing and the vaccination issue is starting to bubble up. It's starting to be a thing. Like, it's his way of thinking and his principles butting up against Australian law. Like, we got to talk about this. And you guys are like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Or one of you was like, ah, let's, let's just cross that bridge when we come to it. And I'm like, this is really going to be a thing. Well, it, it certainly did end up being a thing, but not in the way we thought. I mean, I'll never forget when I got a text from you, Gil, or I read a news story in my living room as I was you know, preparing to watch some of the Australian tennis that Novak had been denied entry at the Australian border. Novak Djokovic. And I knew it would be a huge international story. I just didn't know it was going to go on for another two weeks the way that it did and that he would be detained and, and that kind of thing. And then to really put the cherry on top of this huge international story, Rafael Nadal comes in and wins the tournament. It, it is truly one of the most extraordinary stories in terms of events that I have seen in all my years of covering sports. And how great for our show. No, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what mattered most of all. No, I think you're so right. You really encapsulated both of you and just the, the Novak stuff. That is just uh, that itself, all the things that turned and twisted for him from arriving there, from thinking he was in, from being detained and deported and all the machinations of Australian tennis, state politics, federal politics, international dialogue. I mean, that is itself, that, that's a, there's a dissertation on that and a documentary, all this stuff is going to happen from that. Whereas, um, and then Nadal, yeah, you're right. Nadal who had COVID and hadn't played. And here's Medvedev who'd won the U S open. And here are other contenders and Nadal, how does it, does he quietly sneak through and win the title? He just kind of had that all happen. I don't know that it was quiet because you know, it looked That's like he was in Shapovalov. huge trouble against Dennis, against Dennis Shapovalov looked completely sick, physically done. I think he got quite a bit of help from his opponent on this occasion, but he was able to 
kind of stay in it and fight and not beat himself, which he's so good at, even when things are awful, he doesn't beat himself. Um, and then, yeah, he, he gets to the final against Medvedev. He's lost four straight Australian Open finals. Medvedev had won the U.S. Open the year before. Uh, mm -hmm. Nadal looks physically weaker. He's down two sets to love. There's just no way he's winning this match. And, uh, and he wins the match. There's this physical shift. It, it, it's, it's insane. Let's zero it on it also. Um, I believe loses the first two sets of the final down, uh, two, three, love 40. Yes. Is that two, three, love 40 in the third set. That's pretty amazing. So that puts some, um, that's nine points away from losing that final nine points away, two, three, love 40. And then he, and then he fights back and it kind of, it's like, wow, the, the King is back at the, like the, the slam that he's had that he's only won once and, and been to the finals of four other times, five other numerous times. So just, uh, just incredible. Yeah. The twist for both of them. I mean, you could, it's like different plot journeys and Nadal and the start of Nadal's 2022. So amazing. So Nadal takes the lead in the major count with 21. It was 20, 20, 20 going to the Australian open. So it's, it's this massive swing. And for Nadal, it's his Federer 2017 moment. It's the slam that he won that it just seemed like he definitely wasn't going to win. Um, and he kind of rides that confidence and that momentum into, uh, into more success. He goes to Acapulco, looks amazing, beats Daniil Medvedev easily in the semifinal there, goes to Indian Wells, beats Kyrgios in the quarters, beats Alcaraz in an epic in the semis. Uh, but we get our first Nadal injury. And by the way, Djokovic not in the picture here uh, because he can't enter into the United States. We get that, that first injury. And little did we know at that time how big a part injuries would unfortunately play a role in Nadal's season. Uh, but it, it's the rib injury, and he loses to Taylor Fritz, who, to his credit, was also battling through an injury in mm -hmm. that final. So Nadal was undefeated going into Indian Wells uh, with three titles under his belt um, and, uh, and then lost to Fritz in that final. It, it just felt like that there was so much storyline. Every Nadal match seemed to bring drama and uh, a certain level of, of gravitas. He was taking up a lot of narrative airspace in a good way i feel like in the first two three months of the season i agree he was and it is and it was also rare i mean not since 09 had nadal won the australian open so he's won the first major uh novak is is not playing he's missing the north american sunshine double for because of a you know his decision not to be vaccinated and coming to the not coming to the u.s and nadal is the guy and it's like, and then they start to think, wait a second, Nadal, Novak in 21 almost won the calendar slam. Nadal, here comes Paris, which is, you know, business as usual. We'll, we'll, we'll address that more in a little bit. But uh, wow, what could this be for Nadal at 35? Yeah. Every so often, I will just do a temperature check with you guys quick. Who's your best player in the world right now? Who's the best player in the world right now? Gut check. And I remember doing this. I believe Nadal maybe had just beaten Alcaraz at Indian Wells, and he just won Acapulco in the Australian Open. And it was like, Rafa is. I mean, nobody's playing better than him right now. He's on fire. And um, it's it's a lot has happened since then, as you mentioned, with the injuries, it's just hard to realize that so much has gone by and that that's where we were early part of 2022. And that's part of this exercise to try to kind of eliminate the recency bias of the end of the year where, you know, again, it's just memories are short. So that's oh. kind of why it's it's kind of why it's fun to 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 do this and to go through this. Um, so yeah, Nadal doesn't play Miami because he has those, those cracked ribs, by the way, we forgot like five, two down in the third set against Corda. I mean, so many memorable moments in these Nadal matches. Oh, it's a real treat. It reminded, it's so funny. I remember being at Indian Wells in 2017 when Roger came in, there's something really fun about seeing an experienced person having won a Grand Slam title. And then they're kind of like, what do you call it? Is it like a a celebration is it a more victory lap is it like a, a, a wedding procession there's something it's a great procession of seeing someone who's accomplished something great and now it's just kind of like more gravy please and so watching rafa while granted uh roger in 2017 tore his way through indian wells and miami 
Mm-hmm. Rafa, you saw, was once again as as almost to the plot. It's like that's the fettered path is always the 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 graceful ballerina and Rafa. It's like life is about struggle. Didn't you get the memo? <laughs> memo yeah. is struggle. The memo is you're gonna be you're gonna fight. And I was at all those matches in Indian Wells. You're gonna fight. You're gonna be down versus Sebastian Corda on a Saturday with all the people watching. You're gonna have to fight through that one. And then here's Kyrgios. You're gonna have to deal with that one. And here's Alcaraz, <laughs> next generation. And now you're the final against Fritz. And not quite enough. It's like the the Sisyphus dimension to Nadal is just like so, so on message, isn't it? Yeah, and there was a, a freedom and a fearlessness that he was playing with, especially in, in Acapulco. And I agree because the conditions were kind of. I don't think he was liking enjoying the Indian Wells. The ball, he he struggles to control his forehand sometimes at Indian Wells. But it's like struggling. He loves struggling. Yeah. I, remember, right. remember the Alcaraz match? It was so freaking windy. Yes, yeah. Remember that? It was like a desert dust storm or something. I still have the sand in my eyes. Yeah, I still have a little sand in my eyes there. Yeah. Nine months later. Absolutely. But that was part of that's like it's like as as it should be for Rafa. That's like the time. It's funny. I remember um I think it was 09 in Indian Wells. You think he played Murray. Very windy final. Of course it's supposed to be. It's Nadal. What do you want? You, you, it's supposed to be adversity for Nadal, for Rafa. Roger's going to get his, <laughs> the skies will part. It'll be a perfectly sunny, wind-free day. And Roger will, you know, beat Thomas Burdick, three and four. So uh, Rise of Alcaraz is kind of dominates the the next couple the next couple of weeks, Alcaraz wins Miami, Tsitsipas wins Monte Carlo. Uh, Djokovic enters the picture now uh, at, at Monte Carlo, and there's a couple things going on. Uh, he's not playing well. The, the fitness isn't there. He didn't have the shot tolerance against Davidovich Fakina on that slow clay. Uh, in Belgrade, he completely gasses out in that final against Andre Rublev, gets bageled in the third set. Um, I thought part of it, was rust part of it was calendar spot kind of you know a lot of distance uh from Roland Garros just wasn't fully fit yet but also mental scar tissue is kind of what he talked about a lot Amy that the Australia thing was kind of leaving a a scar yes he admitted it was harder to get over that and pass that than any of us realized and you know what it makes sense I mean, can you imagine being detained in in that hotel with other refugees and having to go through a couple of different court cases? And um, it was like theater of the absurd at times. And then he comes out, remember, guys, and he did an interview. He sat down with an interview with, I believe, the BBC, and he explained his... um, his rationale for why he wouldn't take the vaccine. And I, I thought overall that was a net positive for him. And, and maybe that was um, the first step in sort of getting back to tennis. Um, but then uh, even more uh, problems where the Russians and the Belarusians are not allowed to play Wimbledon, but of course Djokovic is. So it continues there. Right. So let's see. So are we, are we in, but Novak, Novak, he, he wins, he wins Rome. And, well, and- well, I, I want to make a point oh, about sorry, I, I skipped over. I yeah. Said, I yeah skipped many, over. many, much, much. Yeah. Uh, he wins Rome. Uh, sorry. I didn't mean to say that Madrid. I want to make a point about Madrid. We're looking back on this season. And one of the things that really struck me, especially through the lens of Nadal and Djokovic is there were there is almost zero moments in the entire calendar where both Nadal and Djokovic were present and at full power. Very, very few moments. And you could make a case that until the ATP finals or Paris um, indoor hardcourt season, we weren't really feeling good about Nadal and Nadal wasn't playing good tennis. You could make a case that that only moment was Madrid. That was the only tournament. They didn't end up playing each other, and Alcaraz beat both of them, but I thought that was the the tournament where Djokovic hmm. looked like himself, and people could argue with that, but he played a three-and-a-half-hour match against Alcaraz, best three-setter of the year. I thought both of them played incredible tennis. So I thought Novak was back, and Rafa was also playing uh, good tennis in Madrid, you know, kind of gearing 
you know, still maybe gearing up a little bit after the injury, but the foot wasn't really an issue until the next week. So as far as we could tell, everyone was in pretty good shape in Madrid, but that might've been it. But you mean Madrid is the start. I mean, they played at Roland Garros. Yeah, but uh, right. Uh, Rafa wasn't at the peak of his powers because he had the foot problem and he was getting the injections and all that. At Roland Garros? Uh, it, yeah, but not at, not it, it, not to his detriment. Right, exactly. Not to his detriment. Oh, um, I get what you're saying, Gil. I get what you're saying. Like, that was the week where everybody was fine and, you know, things were going well um, for both. And they, it, ironic that they didn't end up playing each other. Um, but that's tennis, you know, like nobody is, how often are the stars going to align? And that's why when fans make these arguments, like, well, Rafa won, um, the Australian open, but Novak wasn't there. Um, that I just toss that aside because you have to play the hand you're dealt the injuries to you or your opponents. Who's there, who's not there. You play who's what's in front of you. And, um, if you win the tournament, you get all the credit in the world. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so yeah, it, that's exactly my my point. I guess what you started with, which is that was the only moment where we were not talking about Novak's ability to play. We were not talking about Rafa's injuries. It was just yes, it's all gravy. Um, and and Amy, like, I think you're right now, like in this era. But like, we, I guess, I, I don't know. Let's look at a uh, 2011. I mean, everyone's pretty much fine. Everyone's gonna be fine. Throughout the calendar year, they're going to duke it out. They're going to play. I mean, how many times did Djokovic and Nadal play in 2011? I think a ton. Um, because they were young and their bodies were were all good all the time. Well, right. They played They played a lot through 2011 and on into 12. I mean, I think they played through like four straight slam finals from 11 and 12. And uh, that's right. But the year, you know, I think also, I think... 50 years from now, when people look back at this time in this decade, they're going to see a whole lot of fragmenting of bodies, souls, minds, choices, that the impact of COVID will never, you know, Nadal had so many other injuries that were tennis related that we don't know even what the, what the recovery from COVID is. So he seems to do well with that. So maybe it's not all it's cracked up to you, but I mean, the, the stress, the stress on the whole world of what's going on in our planet impacts some of these things, even into our tennis ecosystem too. So, but the year... I mean, the the Roland Garros was really interesting. I, while well, you know, I don't like to make predictions. I did pick uh, Novak. I thought Novak was going to win the French for the second year in a row, and then they met in that quarter, and that was a it was a strange match, don't you guys think that quarterfinal? In a way, I also thought it looked like a lot of Nadal and Djokovic's his, historical meetings yes. at the French. Right? It. I mean, we have seen seen that before where the outlier i think the consensus after the match was that 2021 was uh was going to kind of be looked at as of now where we stand as the outlier um in their head-to-head in paris whereas if novak won in 2022 it would have been okay we had a shift here where you know djokovic actually figured some things out about beating nadal best of five on clay and he had set points in the fourth set nadal wins that match in a in a fourth set tiebreaker this year. Novak has set points in the fourth set. He's leading in the fourth set, but then it's just, there was just an interesting, there's almost like a, a an odd state that Novak entered into when he was in that fourth set with Natal. Not a lot know, of fight. Something, something was going on. And again, this is where I wonder, 
you would Novak, particularly through parts of the year, his his fitness, his tennis fitness, his match toughness. You know, he played he played by far fewer matches than he has in a number of years. I mean, we'll toss out 2020, but because Novak played less compared to the other guys, because he he missed um what six six significant tournaments over the course of the year. And also, let's just refresh everybody, Joel, for you picking Djokovic over Nadal. You were not out on a limb by yourself there. Let's remember, Djokovic won Rome. Nadal uh, limped off the court in Rome. I mean, could not. I, it looked awful against Shapovalov. I mean, everyone was very worried for him. And obviously, uh, what ends up happening in Paris is Nadal is numbing his foot with uh, injections, the top of his foot, um, with injections in order to play each and every match. So now Nadal wins Roland Garros, and he's on crutches after winning Roland Garros. <laughs> Like, I mean, Amy, do you remember kind of how you, what you were thinking at this time about the long-term future of Nadal after winning the first two majors in 2022, despite there being this massive black cloud hanging over (laughs) him, which was the the foot? Yeah. I mean, one thing you have to understand about me is I'm a ridiculous optimist and I always see the glass half full and not being a doctor although I've read about the, the um, syndrome that he has, the congenital defect in the foot, his camp, and he was saying over and over again, look, I've been dealing with this my entire life. It flares. I, you know, deal with it in whatever way I can. And then it comes under control and then I play. And so I just like to listen to him and, um, he, he said, uh, yeah, I'm in pain right now, but um, next month I may not be. Um, it's just unfortunate that there were some other injuries like the rib and the ab and, and all that that really hampered him the second half of the year, including the withdrawal from Wimbledon. We had a lot of dialogue about whether he was going to play Wimbledon at, uh, for a time, mm-hmm. briefly. Like, would he play Wimbledon even though he's won two? And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was going on a cautious side about that. Like maybe he won't at all. And it's just so interesting. In the meantime, though, Novak maybe, okay, went back over the grass and conducted his practice and started to build towards trying to win Wimbledon for a seventh time. Well, for Rafa, it was ablation. I don't know what ablation means, but that was, uh, that's, that's what he did. Uh, or he didn't do it. That's what his doctors did. <laughs> and, uh, we kind of go into Wimbledon. Nadal didn't play any warmups, but uh, the foot kind of sorted itself out. And yes, there would be other issues. Uh, but now, uh, you know, Djokovic is, n- there's a lot of pressure on him. And I think that was the biggest thing that we were feeling going into Wimbledon is we, uh, as of now, Novak can't enter the United States. He did not win the first two majors of the year, wasn't able to play one of them. He could go slamless in 2022 if he doesn't win Wimbledon, a ton of pressure on Novak here. Um, well, well, yes, there's, well, I think pressure, you know, I, I think, I think sometimes the narrative, the storyline that people want to impose on the end of a year, like the, the pressure, the pressure is not about going slamless. The pressure is about playing good tennis and trying to win Wimbledon. You know what I mean? I think, I think the, the storyline has got to be looked at from, not the consumer view of how we're going to read. Oh, slamless. That's the pressure. You know, it's the, it's the storyline is Novak trying to win Wimbledon yet again. And there's always these questions around any defending champions, Wimbledon, the young contenders, the surface, the whole world is upon you. Even if he'd won the first two majors, that's the sit. That's a nut. That's a pressure. So I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not. Okay. I know you're, you're, you're uh, not, I push back. I think push, push. It's okay push, but let's get back to Novak at Wimbledon and how he, I think what always, what always, what I always like about watching Novak play is I think in some ways more than our other two, like when I see Federer in Paris, it's kind of Roger on clay. Yeah. He's darn good, but it's his Roger on clay. It's a little bit more less familiar territory. Novak has this seamless way, whatever the slam always, it looks to me like, yep. Home team, practice routine I'm, i always find myself i mean i love watching all these guys in those early practices at slams but novak just seems like there's a seamless quality to how he goes about managing himself like it's not there there you know nadal has injuries federer is a sometimes adjusting to clay 
or something. He so it's just uh, I don't know. I think he he seemed to adapt pretty well once he got on that grass. It took there was some tough. There was a, a Wimbledon, a two set to love comeback from versus Sinner. Once he got a hold of that match, right? Mm-hmm. He was getting off to bad starts in his matches and then playing unbelievable tennis to come back and win. That and, and there was never any finish line. I mean, he would race, he would start off the gates, out of the gates slow and just race through the finish line. Like uh, you told me, of... Gil, did you say to us when he played Sinner, oh, as soon as Novak went ahead in the third set, didn't you think, oh, yeah, this match is over? My whole thing on that Sinner match was Yannick never came close to winning. It wasn't it wasn't close. Sinner did not almost win that match because in the next three sets, he didn't come close to winning any of them. Right. How how often have we seen that? Where where Novak gets down a set or two and then just storms back. Um happened against um was it Tsitsipas, Musetti, um that, that match. That in the French, those were two two sets of love comebacks. That's that's remarkable. A set yeah. down. He's kind of like, that's almost like a diagnostic. That's like, uh, you know, Ken Rose always liked that a lot. Chris Everett was a little bit like that. It's like, good, I've, I've taken your measure. I've, I've got all your data now. I've, but I've back, to the, back to the pushback on, you know, going slamless or whatever. I, I will say in Gil's defense that this was a unique year where Novak was constantly having to defend or um, justify his personal decision not to take the vaccine right up until the final minutes of the U.S. Open when, oh, by the way, COVID wasn't really roaring its ugly head. I mean, we just we had these holdover restrictions still in place in the United States. People were saying, Novak, just take the vaccine. Why won't you take the vaccine? And I was like, people stop, he's not gonna do it. Like if he hasn't done it now, he's not gonna do it. But he had this constantly at him, trailing him throughout the entire season. And that's why I think the win at Wimbledon was even that much more remarkable. I would agree with that, As I, I agree with that. But I, and I think that was, the, that was the stronger pressure of all is his existence in the public international realm around his choice and all that. So that's a different realm than might I dare, might I indeed go, like, it's June 10th, will I indeed go slamless if I don't win Wimbledon? I don't think that was so much as, and I think he was even hoping for maybe the US Open would work out. But I think, but more importantly, June 10th, he's thinking about, okay, win Wimbledon yet again, do my grass thing. But you're right, the 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 broader issue around Novak, like, was remarkable all year and and and, and traveling in the world and, and all the kind of stuff. I think it's also interesting how we see, um, we're really in kind of the pit crew, supersonic care and feeding of the athlete. I mean, I like I was talking with someone about the American football quarterback, Tom Brady, 45 is really the new 30. I mean, and this is really, we're talking the last seven to 10 years of this stuff. The Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi era was fairly, even they didn't have as much of this kind of care and feeding of seeing that they're like, like Nadal with the doctors and, and Novak, who's kind of at the, always been at the vanguard of health and gluten-free and, all and stretching and all this stuff that's making them supreme you know, fighting machines. I mean, I think the whole, yeah, 45 is the new 30, right? I mean, <laughs> when are we going to see people competing in slams when they're 50? Maybe. Okay. So I just think Novak is hyper aware of the situation he's in. I mean, remember he's, he's the guy who has said the whole time he wants to make history. He wants to win this slam race. He cares about that. He wants to win majors. And I, I think he's just, again, subconsciously, I, I get that he's not like bouncing the ball at 1530 against Cam Nori in the semifinal being like, can't go slamless in 2022. I get that. But I think that's very much present in his mind because I think he's aware of, of the situation he's in, in, in tennis history, where this was a significant um, moment in time where with Nadal taking a, a two slam lead uh, to start the year and now Novak gets to play Wimbledon and this is his chance uh, to kind of strike back this year and if he doesn't do it it's going to be kind of a lost year so that's my perspective on it um, he gets to the final against Nick Kyrgios I have uh, how do you guys remember this final because I, I have very 700 cl- drinks <laughs> <laughs> 
as much as Kyrgios's antics were very much part of the narrative in this final, Amy, I remember it as just, first of all, a really high quality match and just a tremendous performance by Djokovic. I think one of the more impressive performances of the year because I think Kyrgios played well. He played all right. Um, to me, I remember thinking that, you know, okay, Nick, you, you did good. You, you had a nice run. You defied your critics. You served well. Um, but you're in a different league now. You're in a different class. And it, it's not really close. Uh, I think Novak could have beat him really any number of ways. But you acquitted yourself well. And um, that's how I remember the match. I think it was a bit of a, I think it was a fairly great effort from Novak because Kyrgios was had this streak. He's a dangerous floater. He's, you know, he's the total wild card in his shot selection. He wins the first set. Not, and then if, yeah, and then Novak does what Novak does. He puts the clamps down, but even then, even then it's funny, both of Novak's last matches in Roland Garros and Wimbledon ended in fourth set tiebreakers and one, he kind of shrunk. And the other one, Kiro's kind of shrunk. And I don't know, you know, I can't even, I don't even want to ask what that was about because it's kind of like a stupid question because the tennis tells the story, but it sure was Novak. You know, no, the the course will be taught mostly on how Novak plays tiebreakers. And you see Kyrgios, he kind of like, he blinked more than once in that tiebreak. He didn't just blink once and then get, get back on his mini break. He just pretty much, yeah, okay. And that was kind of, but again, because you know, winning winning a match in a fourth set tiebreaker, you don't want to lose that tiebreaker. You know, you want to get the heck out of there. And I thought it was a very, um, very impressive. I thought it was more impressive than the prior year's win over Berrettini, because I think if Kyrgios is more dangerous than Berrettini, particularly how well he'd been playing and the kind of, you know, Berrettini is still trying to work out percentages. And Kyrgios says, oh, I have a new, I'm a new bank. <laughs> These are the interest rates I give from Kyrgios. I think so. it's, I think he's crypto. All right, very good. All right, then. Very pretty good. pretty tough to predict where that one's going. That's right. So so um yeah, so I thought it was a neat effort. And I think I think there was this neat signal from Novak. Like Wimbledon, I think, was obviously the pinnacle of his year. Like, all right, yeah, here I am. Once in future me. And by the way, while we're at Wimbledon, before we keep chugging the train down, that uh that middle Sunday with the parade. And who commanded more cheers? Then here's here's Roger. Here's Roger. You got John McEnroe and John Newcomb and all these great champions. And here comes Roger yet again. You know, Roger, does, does anyone just preside, walk on a court more more smoothly and make it make you feel good about being in tennis than Roger Federer? I and mean, we will get to Labor Cup later, but just just so wasn't that a nice moment? Yeah. And and little did we know at the time, because I've gone back and read about this extensively, um, that was around the time that Roger had made his decision. He just hadn't told anyone yet. Ah. So, yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, wow. Is he read the, was that like the Bob Woodward tale of interviewing yeah. details? He was in the cabinet. And, and so had Roger, did Roger walk on the court knowing that he was planning to? I believe so. I believe it was like, may have been the day before or within a very short amount of time of that appearing at Wimbledon. Um, and I remember reading that he was, he had to try really hard to hold it together because he knew that the end was near and this was just, well, this you know, is ceremonial. Yeah. You know, that he was, he was walking out of court knowing that, wow, that guy. Woof. North American hardcore season. The, as Amy alluded to earlier, the United States um, COVID entry of foreigner policy, it's its not budging. It's not moving in Djokovic's direction. So this was about uh, Rafa trying to come back from the ab tear that we actually kind of glossed over um, that he suffered against Taylor Fritz. Somehow won, he beat Taylor Fritz in that quarterfinal, serving like 100 mile per hour first serves. It was another actual actually really memorable and remarkable Nadal win in this 2022 season uh, but he comes back in Cincinnati loses to Borna Chorich there goes your warm-up he's heading into the U.S. Open having not won a match since Wimbledon and uh, I you know the Chorich loss didn't really alarm me I thought Borna was playing great tennis he went on to beat like 
four more top 20 opponents yeah. and win the title. So it's like, all yeah. right, all right, is what it is. U.S. Open, my perspective, I picked Nadal to win, uh, especially because his draw was awesome. His draw yeah. was great. And uh, then I see video of him serving right prior to the tournament, and I go, ooh, my prediction's in trouble, isn't it? <laughs> and, and it was because he didn't really look right throughout, throughout the U.S. Open. Yep. And then I was at that match, the uh, Nadal Tiafo match, and Francis played a tremendous match. However, you know, Nadal wasn't able to capitalize on the plus one forehand the way that he normally does because of his hampered serve. So I not, never to make excuses ever, um, but it is what it is. Um, Make and, explanations. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if it's a player's age. They might think of it's like there's a schedule maintenance. It's like you know now how the uh, you know Nadal at the U.S. Open many times. I mean, it'd be interesting if you looked at every U.S. Open Nadal played and see how many times it was Nadal at least ninety four percent physically. I mm -hmm. mean, it's the things that wear him down. On the other, I mean, it's funny. It's this ways I'm starting to think of how the U.S. Open is becoming more the outlier slam for that reason because. Guys are, it used to not be that. It used to be the conclusive slam because the other slams weren't quite as important and it built up and the US Open was the grand finale. But now you see these things that are occurring, these 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 twists and turns, these people who win it as a one-off, you know, whether it's Chilich or, um, uh, you know, so far Medvedev. And so it's just an interesting twist of things. Yeah, and TFO, he, that was a great match. Yeah, I think we we're all there. And uh, yeah, that's when we had our, just so everyone knows, it's the first time we all three met face to face in person yeah and uh uh that was a great match that was a great that was a great american tennis moment for tiafa it was he's a he's a brilliant entertainer and he gave the tournament and he would beat rublev in the next match he gave the tournament a lot of juice um and now now at this point post us open alcaraz wins it um post us open i i thought nadal was done um i didn't see much use in him returning but roger federer makes an announcement and as soon as that announcement comes well we know even though rafa is um rafa's wife is going to have their first child very very soon you know nadal needs to be at labor cup in addition djokovic gets to now get the wheels turning again on his season as the tour transitions uh to europe there's there's so much going on here um, in terms of uh, all three, really. What an incredible year when you think about it. Like, and then they all meet at Labor Cup to celebrate Roger and the tears and the emotion. Um, and, and Nadal coming to play just this one match because his baby's due any second. And wow, what an eventful topsy-turvy year this has been. Um yeah. And, and the thing that we, I mean, how many times do we have to learn the lesson about Nadal? Like if he's in any way able to play, he's going to play. I don't care if his wife just gave birth. I don't care if his foot hurts or a torn ab or whatever. Um, and, and he surprised a lot of people by showing up for some of these tournaments late in the year. Well, the doubles, I think at the labor cup was, was great. Not so much as doubles or even labor cup as much as this nice way to kind of capstone Roger and Rafa and the picture I, I've written about it, spoken about it, the picture of them holding hands and crying might be one of the greatest pictures in the history of sports about what competition is, about how people connect through competition, through the vulnerability of it and the questions they ask each other and, and their appreciation for one another of how you help, they helped each other become better players and better people. And that's a neat part about competition. So that was just a, a wonderful picture. And I think, I hope, I hope, more people who play the game at every level get what that's about, about the commitment, about the respect for your opponent and the growing with that. I hope I, I I'll sound a little preachy here, but I hope that's the case. It was just such a powerful moment. I mean, I, I know I sure felt it seeing it. You, I know you guys did too. Yeah. And, and I, I feel good about it. Um, personally, I feel like Roger got the send off that he deserved that the fans got, what what they deserved um and you know even though look if i would script it 
Uh, would I have a, a better last two years of Roger Federer's career, one that was a lot easier on, on him uh, in particular? Yes, totally. Uh, but all things considered, there was a lot of reasons after that night uh, to feel really good about how about Roger Federer's send-off. If they'd been better, he'd still be playing. You know, it's almost like you're 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 almost meant to leave sport. In your body, the body is the thing that finally tells the athlete most of all. The body, and there you go. And so, <clears throat> kind of interesting given how how spoiled we've gotten by Roger's lack of injuries. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Novak Djokovic, after winning Wimbledon, or if you include Wimbledon, he played five events. He won four of them, again, including Wimbledon. The only one he lost was that Paris final, up a set and a break, mind you, against Holger Runa. So he nearly swept his last five events of the year. This is like, you know, this indoor hardcore, you know, beautiful form, beautiful level from Novak uh, to, to finish the year. And I think, Amy, for your check, right, for your who's the best player in the world check, Djokovic took the pole position, right? Absolutely. In fact, on another podcast, I was asked both for my player of the year and performer of the year. And I said the performer of the year was Novak. And that's how he ended the year and i have a sneaking suspicion that's how he's going to start next year what's the difference between the performer and the player um i don't know <clears throat> you'll have to ask the guy who was, oh, was his... on on uh, whose podcast i was on but uh I, I i don't want to give away my player of the year right now i don't want to say too much all right yeah i mean how important, Joel, do you think the end of the year was for, for Djokovic? I mean, he's well, for Novak, I thought it was neat. I thought that uh, <clears throat> that run through Turin and winning five matches and beating guys who, you know, younger contenders, and I think none of those guys is more than like nine years, at least nine years younger than him, if not more. So all of that was a statement. I'm the guy. Don't forget it. You guys are all good. Casper and Felix, you guys are nice men. You hit the ball well. I'm the guy. Absolutely. And it's, it is, it is establishing, you know, it's a little bit like when you're, uh, you're down five Oh, in the first set and you scratch out two or three games and the guy wins a set six, two or six, three, but second set I'm here, you know, it's like, and it's a way of Novak. I think Amy is spot on and saying, okay, yeah, this is the prologue for January. hundred percent. Yeah. That's where I'm at it with it as well. He needed, it had been a while, a really long time since he had you know gone two months playing a lot and dominating and i just felt like the the end of the year was proof like he needed to prove to himself and he probably also wanted to show the locker room that he was still the guy and that's where kind of we head into uh into australia uh so with that um let's talk about the player of the year debate my definition let's get on the same page on definition my definition is the player who was most successful in 2022 is the player of the year oh that's pretty good that's pretty tidy i can buy that i'm okay with that except how do you define success that's what we're going to that's about what we're going to start squabbling over that's the that that's the question that's the statement <clears throat> you asked the question now we have to attempt the answers. Okay. So I'll go first. Um, <laughs> I like how I did that. Um, so to, to just to back you up a second, the reason now I can give this away, the reason I wouldn't tell you the difference between player of the year and performer of the year was uh, this guy's podcast allowed me to be diplomatic about it and split it because it's a very close call. Um, to me, Alcaraz is not part, I mean, he's part of the conversation, but, but not, um, not did not pick. qualify. Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, I went with Nadal because you have this parameter of time, which is the calendar year, and he won two Grand Slams, finished the year with a rank of two. And um, for me, as I've said many, many times on this podcast, the Grand Slams tell the story, and that's the ultimate, for me personally, marker 
Um, but it was close. It was very close. So I appreciated the guy letting me kind of be diplomatic and split it. But my player of the year is Rafael Nadal. So we still don't know the difference between how he sees player and performer? It's okay. You can say yes or no and leave well, it Well, it's not my deal. It's not right, my deal. So, okay. um, we're in accord. I had Nadal too. And I've thought about this all year long. And I think, and I've, and I've seen other years in tennis, once upon a time where this is the same thing has happened where the player who wins slams is not number one on the computer. And I liken it to American baseball. The the guy who leads the league in batting is not necessarily the MVP, but, you know, other statistical measurements. But I think something like, excuse me, two majors. And I just was thinking about this. I know the recency thing can shape things, but let's let's tilt it a little bit. Let's pretend that Novak won the Australian and Rafa won Wimbledon in the US Open. There'd be no question we'd be saying, we'd be saying, oh, it's Rafa. So so it's mm-hmm. it's a twelve month it's a twelve month eval <clears throat> based on right and and I like Gil's question who is the most who is the most successful overall and and one of the things I look at I was talking about this with someone in the Hall of Fame or any tennis player when you evaluate how good a tennis player is I said take your three A pluses like if you look at a player in tennis history or or ourselves or anyone else what are your three A plus moments you know John McEnroe's they happen to be four U.S. Opens, three Wimbledons, a ton of Davis Cup, you know, three unbelievable A-pluses. But Nadal, his, if you look at his, let's say he has three A-pluses. Well, two of them are like A-plus-pluses. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, kind of seals it. And and Novak, I think, I guess the other question will become, if we want to get into this, is who's our who's our number two? Who's our who's our silver medalist? But I know, Gil, who's your who's your player of the year? Also Nadal. So, so three votes for Nadal here. And, uh, and yeah, I also kind of simplified it to the majors, you know, Nadal wins two and Novak and Alcaraz both win one. And there needs to be a very, very compelling reason to give it to someone else. If they had less majors, like right. there, it needs to be massive. And it just wasn't massive. You know, look that neither had a complete season, uh, Djokovic was pretty much a non-factor in the first half. Nadal was pretty much a non-factor in the second half. So neither had a complete season. If you look at total titles, Djokovic five, Nadal four. You know, there's a one one difference there. Big titles, you have Nadal two, Djokovic three. Okay, again, slight difference. And then in majors, Nadal two, Djokovic one. Uh, look, I don't like to boil it down to just, you know, uh, soulless numbers like that. But at the end of the day, with Nadal taking a lead in the slam race, you go into the year, it's 2020. With Nadal taking the lead there, uh, he pretty much locks it up unless Djokovic did something, had a spectacular year outside the majors. And by virtue of the fact that he really didn't get to play enough, uh, he did not have a spectacular year outside the majors in terms of how many accomplishments he was able to rack up. The guy who wins um, less slams needs to do something like like if Djokovic or Alcaraz had beaten Nadal five times, <clears throat> won, you know, nine titles, uh, um, Masters thousands, all this other kind of stuff. And they had, they look, they had great, they each had great years too. Their years, I guess, okay, so I'll toss this out. Um, Novak or Carlos for the silver medal? I've put no thought into that. Good. <laughs> I know. Um, I'm going to give it to Novak because he, they each won one slam and Novak won the ATP finals and more titles, right? Correct, Gil? No, uh, uh, tied, tied. Oh, t- five, five titles each? Five each, yeah. Okay. T- tied, um, tied in big titles as well. I mean, yes, though, the ATP finals would be the, the middle ground between majors and 1000s. Who had the better match record? I believe Novak's was 42 and 7. Better win percentage for Novak. In fact, Alcaraz was third in win percentage behind uh, Nadal as well. So it was Djokovic first, Nadal second, Alcaraz third. Yeah, I would, so, so there with, you go. I would go with Novak also for those for the reasons. Yeah, his they each won a slam. Novak won the year end. Um also, though, I'm going to give a slight more, um, I'm going to give 15% more significance to Wimbledon over the U.S. Open. As this, uh, you know, they're all four great majors, but I, yeah, I think, I think Novak, but I think just to parse it, I think Novak and Alcaraz are closer to each other than they are to the other of Ms. Nadal. 
And see, I, I thought I thought Novak and Nadal, a case could be made just because the extraordinary circumstances that he was not able to play those slams. A case could be made, but I, I would not be making that case. Um, oh, no, this is, but, this is a year-end show. That's what we're doing, yeah, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Well, look, it's also great because, you know, by, by the definition we agreed up upon, most successful, this doesn't apply, but narratively and historically, I would argue this was um, a much bigger year for Alcaraz than uh, potentially it even was for Nadal and Djokovic because Alcaraz had his Nadal 05, his Novak 11. He kind of had that breakthrough year where we might we might think about 2022 years down the road and, oh, 2022, that's the Alcaraz year. No, we'll, exactly. think, of Alcaraz, we'll think of the Alcaraz year of ascent that we thought of 05 as the Nadal year of ascent to two. Right, the year 05, right, so it's the year of Alcaraz, but it doesn't mean Alcaraz was the MVP this year, it just exactly. means he, right. was, the, he exactly. was the outstanding newcomer, you know, super yes. outstanding newcomer, who I know he'd been that some in 2021, but I mean, it's his, his breakout year. A Novak, I would say, I would say Novak's breakout year first like that would have been 07, 08, and 11 was his ascent because that's when he became number one. But either way, these things are fun to think about. So, and, and, I, and I hope that's true for Alcaraz. I hope that's true five years from now that we look, yeah, 2022. And that was when, when Carlos won his first slam before he won his, you know, slams three through five or whatever. Hey, to borrow a tennis metaphor for me, he consolidated the break. In other words, right. he had, he had the opportunity. We know he had the goods. Um, and then he, he made good on it by uh, beating Djokovic and by winning a grand slam. So yeah, hopefully there's more to come from this exciting player. Right. Yeah. That's an interesting point, Joel, you made that maybe it's Novak's 08. I mean, he did win the Australian open and uh, so it was a one major year. It was kind of a, a breakthrough, but um, and Novak getting into the dance. That was Novak getting yeah. into the dances. Yeah. That, yeah. Anyway, a little bit different. Um, I, it's probably closest to a Nadal 05. Well, whichever, well, we could do that. That's, we'll a, that's another discussion about whether it's more like a Nadal 05 or what are we talking about? Bottles of wine? <laughs> oh, dude, I think it's more like a federal three. It's, it's dry. It's a dry with a breakthrough. Hey, and, and let's end on this. Uh, it's, Kind of remarkable that in the year 2022, we are still discussing Nadal and Djokovic in the terms of player of the year. And we all agree it was Nadal, but uh, look, best two win percentages this season, hardest players to beat Nadal and Djokovic in 2022. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. Huge help if you leave a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of three.